Hi everyone, this is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the Pin Podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best. Let's start the show. Magnus Grimeland is the CEO and founder of Antler, a startup generator and VC company headquartered in Singapore. He leads a global team dedicated to creating the next generation of entrepreneurs and disruptive tech companies. Magnus served as a Navy SEAL with the Royal Norwegian Navy Special Operations, before heading to Harvard for his degree. Later he joined McKinsey and worked all around the world becoming a junior partner, before co-founding Solora, Asia's largest fashion e-commerce company. In this episode we talk about the key qualities Magnus believed people need to succeed, why this period is a great time to start a company, how he focuses on improving his strengths as well as staying out of his comfort zone, and how people can maximize their impact in the world. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. If you like this episode, please make sure to share it with your network and also give us a review or subscribe on the channel you prefer. Let's start the show. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Bin Podcast. Today I have Magnus with me. And Magnus, for those who don't know you, can you give them a quick insight into your background and why from a very young age started to reflect on the meaning of life and what you want to achieve in life? Yes, so uh, I'm very happy that you have me here and uh, very excited to, to talk to you all. Um, I, I come from uh, you know the farm country in Norway. Uh, I grew up in Holm, uh, uh, which is in Sande Kommune, which is... Uh, uh, a small small Norwegian country uh, was about seven thousand people there at home. I think about a hundred people, and uh, you know, I think about six seven kilometers to to bike to the to the closest shop. So uh, quite different from where I live now in in, in Singapore, where things are a tad bit more concentrated. Uh, so that's that's where I started, and uh, you know, grew up there, um, uh, moved to um, Wales in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, to um, join the United World College of the Atlantic, which is uh, a high school for international students, students all across the globe. So there's actually uh, a great uh, international committee in, in Norway for United World Colleges that will select uh, out of a number of people that apply in Norway, uh, a few people that uh, get the opportunity to get the full scholarship and go to one of their schools uh, all across the globe. So if there's anyone here who is 15, 16, or 17, and uh, wondering about what you should do, then I really encourage uh, checking out United World Colleges because we we literally went to uh, an old castle um, on the uh, on the bay of the Bristol Channel and uh, lived there for two years and did the international baccalaureate uh, with people from 82 nations, which was quite exciting experience getting to know people from you know all across the globe, from all types of backgrounds, people from you know, diplomat families that had lived a lot of different places across the world, but also people who grew up in in, in slums in uh, India or, or Africa. And you learn a lot about people and their backgrounds and where they come from. So I did that for two years. Uh, then I joined the Marine Commandon in Norway. It's uh, equivalent to the, the Navy SEALs in, in, uh, in other countries, uh, which was a very exciting experience. Um, obviously learned a lot about grit and, and staying power, which I think is incredibly important in everything you do. Um, before going to Harvard University after, um, which was uh, also um, a great experience. Uh, you know, got the chance to, again, spend the time with a lot of really interesting people from different backgrounds, which I think had one thing in common, which was that they're very kind of curious and uh, want to see things happen and, uh, and want to 
uh, you know, contribute to positive change. Um, and obviously, there was uh, at that time you really saw the the power of kind of truly scaling businesses when. Uh, you know, obviously Facebook was started there at the time that I was there. And uh, I think I was the first, first person in Norway to join the platform, at least in the very beginning, I knew almost everyone on Facebook. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was there and actually one of our partners in in Australia, running Antler in Australia, I used to be his roommate at the time. Uh, he's a good friend of mine from, from college. And uh, you just literally saw how out of almost anywhere, and, and you're in Tromsø now, uh, it doesn't really matter where you are. If you have the right uh, kind of platform, you can literally serve customers from all across the globe and do that incredibly rapidly, right? I think one of the major learnings there is that it took the airplane industry 68 years to get 50 million customers. Uh, so that's, you know, and that was a very fast growing revolutionary technology. Uh, but, you know, it happened about 100 years ago. Uh, but if you look at, for example, Pokemon Go now, when they launched, uh, they got 50 million customers in 14 days. So, uh, you know, you could, at, at, while I was at Harvard, you could really experience the power of a fast-growing uh, platform that utilizes network effects uh, to grow and scale globally. Um, after Harvard, I joined McKinsey. Uh, there was actually a small period in between there where me and a couple of my friends from Harvard, uh, we built a business uh, and... Um, uh, sold that. Plus, we got some support from Goldman Sachs and Harvard to set up a development project in Zambia. So, you know, for a few months, we were operating in um, this very small slum called Cantalumba outside of Ndola, which is northern Zambia, and working on the kind of a five-point plan to get, uh, you know, in clean water, electricity, build some schools. And I was teaching basic first aid because, um, you know, unfortunately at the time there were people dying there who very easily treated. Uh, you know, infections and diseases, um, which you actually, uh, you know, with, with a bit of kind of, you know, whether you're trained in first aid by the Red Cross or, or in the military, you can actually treat that quite easily and at the same time uh, convey that learnings to the local population. So we did that um, for a bit and that, uh, and then set up an organization together with uh, actually a, a Buddhist uh, organization that was already there where we'd send students uh, for a period of time down there to kind of support uh, that local community of about 12,000 people who lived in the slum at the time. So that was obviously a very different experience, but we wanted to do something like that before going into the corporate world. Uh, we started with McKinsey and, uh, uh, you know, I was in McKinsey for five and a half years, um, left as a junior partner, worked with technology companies all across the globe. I spent about 80% of the time uh, working in countries like, you know, uh, the U.S., most of Europe, Russia, India, Indonesia, Taiwan, a um, little bit in South America, um, and uh, literally serving all types of technology companies because uh, I want to learn as much as I could about the technology value chain and, and how technology drives innovation and change, uh, which was an incredible experience. And um, it was upon that that I got the chance to to, to go down uh, with uh, Rocket Internet and Kinevik as the biggest investors, as one of the co-founders of Solora.com. So we built what is now the biggest fashion e-commerce platform in Southeast Asia. Um, and it's just incredible. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of people watching this who have been part of building your own businesses or are doing it right now. But when you see that incredible growth from, you know, zero to 2000 employees and, uh, you know, building out logistics networks all across a uh, very varied region in Southeast Asia, um, 
and uh, you know doing everything from the hardcore logistics part and the tech part building you know an actual tech platform uh, to um, uh, you know doing something creative you know fashion in general is is more of a creative art right so uh, there's a lot of things that you have to to learn to to pull that off and there's a lot of incredible people that you need to hire that know stuff way better than you do to, to make it happen so uh, you know that that was an incredible journey. We sold that company, had, had a great exit in 2015. I started working for the people who acquired us for a while as a chief operating officer, and uh, and then uh, you know left later to set up Antler. And over the last few years, um, we've expanded Antler all across the globe. We're now live in six continents. Uh, we just announced Bangalore in India um, a couple of weeks ago. We're obviously also present in, in your and, and my home country, Norway and Oslo. Uh, we started here out of Singapore. And, you know, with Antler, we just support uh, thousands of entrepreneurs every year um, to execute on their dream and build fast-growing tech companies around solving important problems. And uh, uh, that is, you know, extremely fulfilling. And I think, you know, there's kind of one thing that you learn from this journey is you should always, uh, in life, strive towards um you know getting your passions more and more aligned with what you spend your time doing and i feel like i've been very lucky to to to, to kind of go through that in my life and now i'm in a situation where my passion is a hundred percent aligned with what i spend most of my time doing and you know we can impact a lot of people while at the same time returning strong uh, returns to our investors which is which is very exciting and uh, you know i think what started all of this goes back to your initial question you know, you, you never know, uh, you know, how you get get formed through life. But it was, you know, a very, very specific moment in my life that I remember really well was uh, was when my great grandmother uh, died. And, um, you know, I was quite young at the time. Uh, I think it was around 10. And, uh, you know, I asked my parents at the time a lot of questions around, you know, what happens after you die? And, uh, you know, um, you know, part of my family is, is, is religious and, and obviously have answers related to that. And the part of my family is, uh, you know, more um, on the other side of the spectrum, which means you live your life and, uh, you know, what happens after is, is either nothing or, or we definitely don't know. So I started thinking a lot about, you know, so what, what, what do you do with your time on earth, right? And, um, and uh, you know, I think uh, if you spend your time thinking through that, and you know, I think there's a lot, lot more important people than me who've spoken about the importance of just, just kind of thinking through. If you only have kind of a few years left, how would you spend your time and what would you do? And um, you know, uh, one of the things, at least, that I wanted to accomplish is to have some, some sort of impact uh, 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 on the world in a positive way uh, while you're here. Um, and I think that's something everyone should strive to. Uh, of course, on top of being close to your friends and family. So, um, and I think if you think through that in an early age, uh, uh, it, it helps direct for the rest of your life and it helps set a certain set of values uh, and targets and goals uh, that, that you can drive towards on top of whatever else you believe in. That's awesome. I mean, you've done so many amazing things uh, from a very young age and you touched upon it, the, the moment where you started to, to reflect on this. Um, I just also wanted to mention, could you talk a bit about all the different side jobs you had? Because you, you kind of 
from the outside seem like a, a person who likes extreme challenges, whether it's triathlon or ice climbing and such stuff. I think you said it's that was the best summer job you ever had. I think you did it for many, many years. Can you talk a bit about those experiences as well and how that has influenced you in, in life? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, the very first thing I did actually was, um, uh, you know, I, I started a chicken farm when I was young. So I, I, I asked my parents uh, if, if I could buy some chickens. And, and, and chickens are pretty cheap because, like, you, know, you can buy an egg for uh, two Norwegian Kroma um, uh, at the time, at least. Um, all right. I can't remember if it was one or two. Uh, so I bought, you know, 20, 20 eggs and you put them under a, a lamp and, uh, you know, they turn into chicken and, and some of them become hens and they will start producing eggs, uh, one egg a day on average. So that, you know, I think at the time I had, you know, a maximum of 20 hens uh, there on the countryside, which generated, you know, 20 eggs uh, per day, which I sold for two krona each. So that's, you know, uh, 40 kronas uh, income per day, which is quite a lot, at least was quite a lot at the time. Uh, at the young age, uh, so um, that's the first thing I did. Um, um, the most exciting summer job I had was, yeah, definitely the glacier guiding. Um, you know, uh, my father is uh, is born and, and grew up at Finse, which is in the in the mountains of Norway. It's where the railway goes over from Oslo to Bergen. It's the highest line railway station in in northern Europe, and um, um, it's, it's just an incredible place with an incredible amount of history. It's where the Norwegian polar explorers and, and even Scott um, uh, trained before their expeditions to the South Pole and the North Pole. Um, it's where a lot of the aristocracy of Europe would go on their winter vacations because you could take the train straight up into the mountains. It's where the Star Wars Snow Planet movie was filmed. Um, just this place with an incredible uh, amount of history and um, my great great grandmother actually built that hotel. So the the Finso Hotel was um, originally um, a, a hut that served the, the railway engineers that uh, was building the the Bergen railway. And uh, when the railway opened, uh, she turned it into a, a hotel. Um, and uh, you know, I'm very happy to actually have been able to to invest in that hotel last year. So now, you know. A small portion of the hotel is, is back under uh, you know, our, our family, which is very excited with, with a set of really, really exciting other Norwegian investors and uh, the Norman family who's taken incredibly good care of that hotel over the last few years. So it's, it's, it's a place that I've meant a lot to the family. Also, my great grand, uh, also my grandfather used to run the railway up there. So you know, we'd go there and spend our summers always up there hiking biking mountain climbing and uh, i got the opportunity through uh uh and eirik who runs this uh, organization called the Club Utana, uh, to uh, be a glacier guide there which literally means you take 15 people um on the glacier every day so you meet them on the railway station in the morning you walk for about an hour up to the glacier you put everyone into crampons ice axes and uh, and ropes and uh, show them around the glacier, climb into some crevasses and tell stories about the uh, pinza and about glacier and about geology. And I did that from my, uh, when I was 19 and uh, from when I was 20 years until I was 26, uh, I did that over the summers. And uh, you learn an incredible amount when you meet 15 new people every day 
you get to share six to seven hours with them in an environment where they feel um, um, you know, a little bit uncomfortable. So meaning they're pushing their edges, uh, which means they, they share their feelings and emotions in a very different way. So you learn a lot about storytelling, you learn a lot about uh, other people, how to interact with them, and also how to deal with people who are, you know, sometimes um, at the edge of extremity, you know, now and then we'd have some accidents up there and we need to call in the helicopter and get people out. So, um, you know, just, you know, I'd really encourage uh, everyone uh, to do, um, you know, some of those things and, and not go into too much of a uniform pattern um, at the young age, but but try different experiences. And, and through that, you will learn these things that you wouldn't have imagined, right? I mean, you know, one of the things you would imagine uh, being a glacier guide is you'll get in really great shape and, you know, <laughs> because you walk around, but, you know, that's that's a small part of it. The big part of it is really getting to know human beings and uh, and their stories. And actually, a lot of the people I brought up there has later become very good friends of mine um, that have been very meaningful for me and in things I've done later in my life. I mean, the cool, the cool thing about that is that you actually share very unique experiences because maybe for you, it was a normal day, but for the guys you, you brought along with you, maybe it was like a one, once in a life opportunity that will like stick forever in their life. So, Yeah, very much. Very much so. You have said that there are some similarities between performing in the Navy SEALs and going into Harvard. Can you talk a bit about the differences and the similarities in doing those things that you have done? So um, I think, you know, um, the, the biggest learning you can get out of doing um, something like this is, um, I, so, so, so these experiences serve two purposes, right? So like, obviously, um, Marine and Commando in itself is just an incredible unit. And, um, you know, what, you know, a, lo a lot of my friends who are still there, um, um, are still doing it's just incredible i mean they're putting their life at risk uh, multiple times every year um to uh you know uh, provide a bit of that security that is needed in a society to well function and uh, you know obviously the public will know part of this uh through stories uh you know coming through uh the media but it's just an incredible group of individuals and you know i was just you know there for a little bit of time I'm going to share a bit of that experience but it's just an incredible group of individuals that are uh you know giving their entire life uh to 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 the king and country and uh, you know ensuring that people can go about their life in, in a normal manner so I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people who are still there and they're they're doing absolutely insanely great job and I think we have some of the very very best special forces in the world coming out of Norway um so um um now um, in terms of one of the things you realize when you when you go through kind of something like that and you see it also in Harvard and you definitely see it in entrepreneurship is um, you know there are there are a few factors that you kind of you know that is needed to succeed and then there are some that you don't think about that often but obviously to 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 be at Harvard or be a, in the Navy SEALs or be an entrepreneur um, uh, you know there are certain kind of skill sets you need to have to be successful at it and you also need kind of a basic level of um you know you know physical fitness for the military a basic level of knowledge and uh, you know intelligence perhaps to do the thing that uh, you do at harvard and you need the same thing in entrepreneurship 
But one thing that you don't think about that often is the, the grit factor of this, right? Which is, um, you know, um, a lot of the people who made it through the uh, selection process for uh, Marine in Commandon are not necessarily the ones that were in the best physical shape going into it, or, but it was the ones that decided to never give up. It was the ones that decided that I'm going to do this no matter what. And I think in most tasks in life, that is even more important than all of those other things. And it's the same with kind of getting into Harvard and being at Harvard and doing well there. It's just, like, you need this mentality that you, you're just going to get it done. And I think it's even more important in entrepreneurship. Like one of the things we always tell our founders is, um, you know, in 93 or 95 or 99% or so, people disagree what the statistics is, but at least 90% plus of all startups fail. Um, and, uh, you know, the vast, the vast majority of those really just fail for the wrong reason. It's, it's not necessarily that the person couldn't pull it off. It's not necessarily that they weren't working on the right thing, but it's very often that they just gave up when life became too tough, right? And the best entrepreneurs out there, they just decide that, hey, I'm gonna do this. Um, and I'm, I'm going to succeed no matter what. If you go into an entrepreneurial journey saying, I'm going to try this out and then see if it works. And if not, worst case scenario, I learned something. Then you know as a fact they will fail from day one. So you need to go in there and be 100% committed to, uh, to succeeding and not accept failure as an option. And I think you need to do that in any kind of uh, uh, environment which requires as much of you and, you know, Marine here and, uh, and the Navy SEALs definitely does that, right? Um, if you at any point of time think that, hey, I could just as well do something else, you will just give up on the way because it is pretty damn tough. Um, and it's the same with entrepreneurship. It's like, it's much easier to take a job, get paid well, get the paycheck every month, uh, fly business class here and there. If you're in an executive position, uh, you know, as I say, you get kind of free Thursday on Fridays and free massages. You know, that's that's a better subsistence for many people. But entrepreneurs, they live in tents. They live from uh, hand to mouth. Uh, they will definitely have kind of two to three years of their life, which is incredibly, incredibly tough, not only of them, but on their family and their friends. So you need to be very serious about succeeding. Um, um, and you need to realize that you're going into this space where if failures start creeping into your mind or you get a mindset that failure is okay, um, you will not succeed. So I literally tell all our entrepreneurs, it's like, hey, you know, call all your friends, call your family in the same way as, you know, my family knew when I went into the military is that they won't hear from me for a while. Like call all of them and say to them, you know, I'm now I'm building a business. I'm fully focused on this. If you want to talk to me, I'm happy to talk to you, but I'll talk to you, <laughs> talk to you about my business. Um, um, uh, except if you have children, then you should probably spend some time with them, right? So I think that mindset side and the grit and this ability to never give up um, is, is the number one learning that I got through those experiences. And um, um, I think it serves everyone well uh, who, who are starting and are thinking about building their own business because you should think through it first. It's going to be hard and you've got to come in there with the right mentality that you will succeed. Definitely. I, I just want to touch upon one thing when you went to Harvard. I think you, you mentioned the Mark Zuckerberg, he created Facebook there, but another 
interesting story, I think, is that you actually, did you train with the Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss twins during that time? <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. So, uh, you know, I, I, I came in there and obviously had, you know, came in from my, my glacier job and, uh, you know, been in the military before and, uh, you know, was in, in, in reasonable physical shape and um, wanted to do some sports at Harvard and figured out that uh, the rowing team is pretty, pretty good. So uh, they have the world's best rowing teams there. And uh, I came on as a vocal um, and, uh, you know, started rowing. And, uh, you know, obviously at the time, um, you know, you, 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 spend a lot of t you spend a lot of time with the people you train with. Uh, so obviously we got to know these guys. And, um, you know, there was another Norwegian there at the time. He also was an incredible rower. He was, I think, yeah, junior Norwegian champion, Knut Klok. So there was another Norwegian there who's, who's currently living in Oslo. And, uh, you know, just a tremendous environment. And obviously the Winklevoss twins, uh, you know, um, they were involved, as a lot of people know, in the early days of Facebook. And since then, they have become some of the biggest people within, uh, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies globally and now have their own cryptocurrency exchange. And I think at some point of time, they own 1% of the world Bitcoin supply. And, uh, you know, it's quite exciting with these type of people who, you know, they excel in sports. They, uh, you know, who knows how they were involved in the early days of Facebook, but uh, obviously they were involved somehow uh, because there was some settlement there, uh, which paid out pretty well. And, uh, you know, now they're, um, uh, uh, you know, doing incredibly well, disrupting a whole new industry. So, uh, you know, hats off to, to them. I mean, they've, uh, you know, helped change the world fundamentally within three different areas. I guess you can't really change the world through rowing really fast, but at least they were leading in that. Uh, but two others, uh, I think they definitely made the... A big, a big impact on the world, and I think they will continue to innovate and do well. But could you tell from that time that the talent pool at Harvard would actually influence the world that much? Could you feel it when you were studying there, or is it kind of like also a bit surprising to see after the fact? Well, I think it's not so much that you're necessarily there and the environment there and so on. It's just like, you know, I think it's part of the selection process to get in there. They're looking for people who... Uh, have an interest in in excelling within various fields, whether that is music or movies or science or writing or politics or business or whatever it is, right? I mean, they're they're selecting for people with with spikes, uh, uh, a very diverse group of individuals. Um, so yeah, no, I, I don't think that's incredibly surprising. Um, I think though, what is um, Incredibly important to point out is that I absolutely don't think it's necessary, right? So I think that, you know, it's, it's a great environment to be in, but what is more important is uh, thinking through who you are right now and how you can kind of hone those skill sets uh, that, that you have as an individual. Uh, I think to, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know what it takes to become an, an amazing musician or what it takes to become an amazing writer, but I'm starting to understand a little bit about what it requires to be an amazing founder and an amazing entrepreneur. And I think that uh, there are kind of fundamentally three skill sets that is needed um, to succeed. A is a spike, meaning there's something that um, you are incredibly great at and better at than most other people. So for example, in your example, you now um, set up this, this podcast and done a number of other things, but 
in particular with podcasts, you've kind of been able to reach out to a large network of highly interested individuals and, uh, you know, brought them into your network. And that's, that's in itself a, a great skill set and potentially a spike. But kind of knowing what your strengths are is incredibly important. And then utilizing that strength to its maximum. Like most founders are quite spiky individuals. Um, and this is not something you're born with. It's not something you develop at Harvard or anywhere else. It's something that you fundamentally need to look at yourself at and kind of try to figure out like, what am I really great at? And it's probably something connected with also your passions, right? Because that's where you spend real time. And it could be, you know, the ability to walk into an elevator and speak to kind of 20 strangers and get to know them before the elevator hits the bottom floor. It could be that you spend your entire weekend, you know, going deep into code and coding something. It could be that you read up on rocket engines and you know more about rocket engines than anyone else. Just like identify what that is. Um, um, and the second thing is drive, which is very related to passion is like the ability to get things done um, and not just talk about stuff, but really through the force of your personality, accomplish things. It's not related to extra being extrovert or introvert. It's not that kind of bro culture type drive that I'm talking about. It's that inner passion um, an ability to move things forward. Um, um, uh, and that can also be developed, right? It's not, you know, there's a lot of people that I know that in, in a portion of their life didn't have any drive at all, but now have more drive than anyone else. So it can be developed. And the, and, and the third is this grit thing that I spoke about earlier. And none of that you get out of, kind of, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in, in, uh, in, in Harvard or that slum in, um, that I was working in in, uh, in in Zambia to kind of develop those three skill sets. The difference is obviously the network you have access to is different, right? Obviously the network you develop at Harvard is pretty incredible. But one of the things that we're trying to do um, in Antler is provide that network to everyone so that anyone that has a spike, everyone that has that drive, everyone that has that grit can access the same network uh, as I've been fortunate to to, to access uh, due to my previous experiences and thereby access a much broader talent pool of potential entrepreneurs that have that spike, have that drive and have that grit. So, um, you know, it's, it's a long answer to your question, but yeah, most definitely it, it was not surprising, but at the same time, I absolutely don't think it's a necessity uh, for people to kind of have gone to a place like that to do incredibly well. Totally. How have you developed your own spike during these years? Have you been like thinking about it a lot or is it something that had just evolved over time and how would you define your own spike? Yeah, so I think that, um, um, you know, I, I thought about it obviously a lot and the way that I um, think about it is uh, to try to surround myself with great individuals that have different spikes than myself, right? So. You know, if, if you look at, for example, the, uh, you know, the Antler leadership team, we have, um, you know, people from a very diverse set of backgrounds. We have people who have very different uh, spikes. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, Fritjof von Vegard, who came on early on board, who was part of building this, are, uh, you know, incredibly organized individuals uh, who create a ton of structure. Um, and puts in place incredible processes that, that makes it easier to organize a huge amount of individuals. And obviously currently we're working with about 1500 entrepreneurs at any point of time. That's incredibly important. Um, 
So I think that's one learning. It's like surrounding yourself with people who um, are where their spike is somewhat different than your your own, right? I think that um, you know, I think there are two areas in which I'm um, uh, that I consider myself at least strong is is the ability to kind of mobilize and bring people together um, and lead them towards uh, 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 you know an ambitious and common goal. Um, um, I think that's something that I've, I've done pretty well from an early age and really enjoy. Uh, and it's incredibly important to, to what Andrew is doing. Um, and uh, I think the other part is just kind of executional uh, skills as to just kind of getting things done. Um, so, you know, um, but I think the first one is probably where I'm, I am the best. And, um, and uh, you know, currently what we're doing is uh, is, is, is obviously, um, you know, that, that part is quite important. Um, but again, right, uh, as important and possibly even more important than your own spike are the spikes of the people you surround you with. So thinking through which co-founders you bring on board and thinking through the other people you have in your leadership team and the people that you hire to ensure that they have the skills that are required um, to, to fill up for your deficiencies is also very, very important part of that equation totally yeah when you were decided to to grow salora and, and to make it a success i think you you mentioned a couple of times in your previous podcast that there were some part of of that, that time where you think a lot of other people would have given up there were some big challenges there so i just wondered how did you conquer those challenges can you give us some insight into what was like the toughest challenges growing salora and, and how you managed to to get through with it yeah, so um, I think the interesting thing of building a business is that you get surprised quite frequently and uh, you can get surprised by really big things, right? So obviously, you know, e-commerce as a concept sounds, uh, you know, pretty pretty straightforward today, right? You build a website, you put your products there and then people make an order and then uh, when they order it, you, you ship it. Um, and you need to market to those customers so they can see that you have those products, right? So it's in itself, it's kind of a basic concept, but then um, what, what you start realizing, especially when you're working across such varied markets and some of them be really being emerging economies is um, that a lot of the infrastructure that, that you're used to, um, you know, doesn't exist. So for example, one of the things we struggled a lot with in the beginning was how can you get people to pay for this? Because, you know, in Norway, it's easy. Everyone just pays with a with, with a credit card or a bank card, or you uh, get a gyro and you, and you pay with that directly from your bank account. Now, if you're operating in a country um, with uh, uh, you know 300 million people and it's only three percent bank card, uh, uh, you know penetration, or I think at the time it was like 15 or 20 percent bank account penetration. Like, how do you get paid for the people? the stuff people order, you don't want to serve only 3% of the market, right? So we actually had to develop, you know, a payment system, which obviously was not uh, part of the plan as we build an e-commerce company. And the way we did that is uh, we rolled out the first end-to-end -end cash on delivery system across a number of markets in Southeast Asia, serving, you know, hundreds of millions of customers. And this in itself is quite challenging because, you know, if you take Norway as an example, um, but then you blow it up. Um, you know, in Indonesia, you have, you know, about 300 million people. And, um, 
you know, if you're sending, let's say, a package to Papua, that package will go from your warehouse to another warehouse, then on a plane, plane will land on another airport, it will go into um, a truck, the truck will go to another DC, then uh, into another truck, the truck will then unload it on the boat, the boat will unload it to a motorcycle driver in Papua, and the Papua will hand the package to the customer, and then the customer gives you $10, and then this $10 needs to find themselves all the way through a country which, by the way, um, uh, you know, ten dollars is, is a lot of money for a lot of the people on the way, and it needs to make itself all the way back this value chain to, to your warehouse, right? So that's obviously a challenge. Um, and you know, um, um, uh, in the beginning, I think we had something like a hundred plus outstanding days of working capital, meaning it took more than a hundred days for that ten dollars to make it back on average. Um, and we managed to bring that down to about four days. Uh, uh, just before I left, which is which is pretty incredible. But once you have that system in place, it's a huge competitive advantage, right? Because you can you can serve a number of customers that other people can. Uh, but you're reliant on building such a system. Um, and you know, we could have just given up and said, "Hey, we're going to serve this percent of the market and build a much smaller business," um, or we could take it head on and develop a, a, a payment system. It's the same for logistics, by the way, right? It's like we're struggling a lot to just get packages delivered. So we, I think in almost 50 cities, we launched a hyper-local delivery network of more than a thousand motorcycle drivers, which was also not part of, like when you set up an e-commerce company in Norway, you don't think, hey, I need to hire a thousand motorcycle drivers, right? So it's, it's these types of challenges that you meet as an entrepreneur, which if you solve them, makes you much stronger and you build a moat and you grow much faster but if you just give up you end up being a tiny business or you go bankrupt right so that, that that's that's you know and then you meet all these funny challenges on the way right so like you know one time we came to our warehouse in indonesia and um uh, the workers uh didn't want to go to work because they they had been a sighting of a ghost uh in the warehouse um, and, uh, you know, uh, in big parts of Indonesia, uh, people believe in, in ghosts. It's, it's not really ghosts, but something similar to ghosts. Um, um, and we had to hire uh, Ghostbusters. It's not really Ghostbusters. It's more like a, a, a priest of some sort to come in and, and clean the warehouse of, of, of ghosts, which you also don't, you know, it's also not on your kind of playbook for uh, you know, building a business that you need to to clear your warehouses for ghosts. So there are, you know, but again, like this, this is this is incredibly exciting, right? I mean, these types of if you get excited about these type of challenges and you want to take them head on, then you know, entrepreneurship is for you. Um, if that would make you very <laughs> nervous and uh, want to give up, then uh, it's it's probably not worth it in the first place. Because obviously, this is very specific to what we were doing, but I. Like any entrepreneur can tell you 10, 15 of these stories with every single company they built. And, uh, and you know, you need to, to relish these types of challenges and say, hey, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to do better and definitely not give up. Like, I mean, think about SpaceX. No, they just sent two people to the space station, first company that ever sent people in space. Um, and, uh, you know, the only ones who've done it before are governments. Um, and um, well, Elon Musk blew up 
a bunch of rockets run completely out of money had to i think uh uh take a loan on this house and you know tesla at the time was also struggling so everything was going wrong but you know a lot of normal people would have given up on at that point of time but i think great entrepreneurs they power through and you know now spacex is probably one of the most exciting companies in in the world in terms of future exploration and i think that's just due to that grit right and i think you know if there are norwegians listening to this and you want to you know you obviously know uh, your own history quite well um if you go kind of 100 to 120 years back in time and you think about those explorers um they were entrepreneurs in themselves right you know you couldn't when you were amundsen and you you said you were going to the north pole instead you went to the south pole you kind of you beat the competition a bit already there. And then once you got started and you were there, you really didn't have a choice to turn around because if you turn around, uh, you would kill half of your people. So, you know, it's, it's that type of mentality, I think is deeply ingrained um, uh, in Norway. And I think deeply ingrained actually in most cultures. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely the type of mentality you need as an entrepreneur. Got it. So. So after you made Solora a success, you I guess you start to think about doing something for yourself. Um, can you talk a bit about how the idea about Antler came to be? And I think you said that you wanted to be the the world's biggest platform for innovation, which is a very bold vision and a, an incredibly cool vision. Can you talk a bit about that process and what were what was going through your mind as as you were kind of like thinking about this idea of Antler? Yeah. So. Um... I mean, being being biggest in itself is not that important for us. Uh, but what what matters to us is uh, we we want to just support exceptional people uh, to build fast growing technology companies around solving important problems, and thereby help build uh, a better future. Right. So that's that's the underlying vision and mission of Antler is, you know, if we can support the most exceptional people in the world uh, and help them accelerate innovation that are solving important problems. Um, we, we, we can, we can build a better world. And, uh, you know, the only way I think to truly do that through entrepreneurship and innovation is to build kind of truly successful businesses around solving these problems. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known, um, um, you know, aspect that if you can tie kind of incentives back, um, uh, to delivering strong, um, uh, you know, impact, uh, that is, that is much better than just giving things away. So. You know, obviously, as part of that, we need to deliver a, a tremendous amount of returns to our investors and the people that support us and these portfolio companies on the way, right? But that's our vision, and um, you know, this this came to be because you know, while I was in McKinsey, we spent some time in um, uh, you know working with some of the world's best technology companies, and you know, it's quite interesting when you go to places like. Um, you know, take take BlackBerry as an example, right? BlackBerry was this, you know, number one uh, leading uh, kind of business mobile platform. Uh, you know, all my friends at Blackberries. Um, you know, BlackBerry Messenger was by far the biggest kind of messaging platform outside of SMS. Um, um, obviously now, you know, they they struggle a lot and um, you know are not that anymore. But in these engineering departments of BlackBerry. They were doing some tremendous amount of research, um, and you see that out of BlackBerry, when they started failing, these 
um, engineers left to set up their own businesses. So I think there's about seven unicorns that have come out of BlackBerry, right? If you think about Spotify in Stockholm, how many people have left Spotify to, to build great businesses? If you think about Solora, the business we built, um, you know, the two people we had uh, who, who were leading Indonesia left to set up Gojek, which is now the biggest employer in Indonesia. It's a $15 billion company. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's a super app with a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, services that they provide. Um, and, uh, you know, the person we actually hired to take it over after is Frederick, Frederick Thomasson. He runs uh, a really cool company out of Norway. Um, but anyways, we had these leave to do that. We had um, um, one person leave to build Shopee, which is the biggest general e-commerce company now in Southeast Asia. We had people leave to build other great companies. So out of kind of great, fast-growing tech companies, out of established tech companies, out of kind of research from universities, uh, operators from you know big industrial companies comes incredible talent that if given the opportunity and given the network and given the first bit of capital and assuming they're solving a real problem that is worth solving and is truly scalable, you can you can really accelerate um, entrepreneurship on a global scale and and that was the hypothesis behind Ampler and. We started that, you know, obviously in, in Singapore first, and then we expanded now across the globe. We're, we're currently active in about 14 locations. We're running programs in, in seven of them currently, and the others are about to come on board and go online. And, uh, you know, I think we're quite, you know, humble and excited about being able to serve uh, thousands of entrepreneurs uh, every year and uh, build hundreds of new companies around them solving important problems. So. Uh, yeah, that, that was the, the mission and vision and we stayed true to it and, uh, you know, are working every day very hard to ensure that that happens. I think you said previously that you have around 50,000 applicants that have tried to get into Antler and you obviously just choose a couple of percent of them to get in. So yeah. the interesting question is like, how well do you like track people right now? What are the key learnings? Because the, the database you have been building over these years seems pretty pretty interesting having so many different people from all over the world applying and also see how them evolve in the Antler program and who makes it through the whole program and manage to raise capital and build the businesses. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we'd, we'd obviously love to work. Um, I, I guess we don't want to work with all 50,000, but there's already a lot more we'd love to work with. I think we'd love to work with anyone who's truly passionate about succeeding and uh, are serious about entrepreneurship. Um, we we don't like working with kind of what we call lifestyle entrepreneurs, people who are entrepreneurs because it's cool to be an entrepreneur or people are kind of just doing it because they don't have anything else to do or people have built kind of 10 businesses the last eight years and they just jump from one thing to another. We want to work with people who are incredibly passionate about solving one problem and they're going to succeed no matter what. And I think there's a proportion of those 50,000 who are way more than the ones that we can work with because obviously we have a limited capacity. So can't work with everyone. We'd love to bring in much more people. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we try to get smarter and smarter to kind of um, uh, figure out who are the best people to work with. One of the interesting kind of outcomes of the way we work is the diversity of the founders that we work with, right? So, um, you know, we spend two to three months with our founders before we decide who we invest in. And 
that has led to us kind of investing much more on the intrinsics of the individuals and much less based on their past experience. Um, and, uh, you know, that has led to a few interesting things. Like we don't do, for example, any affirmative action. Um, so we, you know, we don't, you know, we don't make it easier for people from a specific ethnic background or uh, women or others to, it's not easy for them to get into our program. It's as hard for everyone. But we've ended up with a very diverse portfolio, like 40% of our portfolio companies have a female co-founder uh, with 80% of them um, leading that company. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you look at in Norway, I think the amount of tech founders that are female is, is single digit. If you look at the US, 3% of all venture capital money goes to female co-founders. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, while, while we are currently, you know, at about, uh, you know, 4% of our portfolio having a female co-founder. We've built companies with people from 61 nations. Um, so all types of backgrounds, we just care about the intrinsics. And I think have a portfolio which is much more representative of the global talent pool and create kind of equal opportunities for everyone, which I think is incredibly, incredibly important. Now, we try to learn every day to find out how we can be even better at selecting so that we do. The other thing that we do, which is related back to your question is, we're looking at how we can support even more people. Um, so we just launched uh, a beta version of uh, what we call the Ampler Launch Academy, which is kind of a pre-program program. It's a five weeks online program, uh, which we will be rolling out uh, in Europe as well shortly, uh, which will um, you know, allow a large, a large number of other people that we don't bring into our offices uh, to at least take a little bit of advantage of the modules that we run uh, in terms of ensuring that you put together a great co-founding team, you really get to validate your business model and you can raise that first bit of capital. So, you know, we hope to support even more people through that program. And then as we expand globally, uh, you know, work with more and more entrepreneurs. And in the meanwhile, we obviously want to make our selection process better and, uh, uh, you know, bring in better and better people. I think this is a pretty easy question to answer, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. So I think in Antler, you are very focused on that people will not go about their uh, company alone. So basically you want people to pair up with other groups, either it's two or three person team. Is it just like so clear science and research space that if you add a, a couple of people to your team that the success rate goes up, that is the reason behind that? So um, we, in terms of the number of co-founders in the team, um, uh, you know, you just look at, like in the beginning, if you're in the beginning, you're very reliant on just the team that you have because you haven't hired anyone yet. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, typically as individuals, there is like one or two things that you're really great at. There's very few people who's great at everything. Um, if you if you truly believe that you're great at everything, then uh, you know you probably just haven't met uh, people who are better at you at some of that stuff, right? So I think you know, um, uh, what, you know, you, you got to realize that there are probably people out there who will be better at you at some of the things you need to accomplish. And if you can put together a co-founding team that brings in those skill sets early on, you can leverage a much larger amount of people, right? Imagine if you are building a business, you have a hundred hours, let's say, per week that is available to you to build that business. If you have the co-founder with a different skill set from you, uh, that's a hundred additional hours. You, you double the resources you have available. 
You can also have someone to discuss important decisions with and so on. Um, and then, you know, also people go through periods of their life with unexpected things happen, right? Whether it's disease or there's something in the family or there's something with your kids or something else happens. So just having a little bit like one or two other people that can then step in and take a little bit more of the work. So there's just a number of reasons for why a two to three people team will kind of vastly outperform uh, one person teams um, uh, on average. Right? It's, I'm not saying that one person teams have not succeed. We've also invested in one person teams. They, they, they sometimes do, but on average, it's much better to be two to three people. Um, then there's also a point of time where um, you know, if you become four or five or six or seven co-founders, that it might be difficult to make um, effective decisions uh, and move the organization forward, which is also incredibly important, right? So you need to ensure that, um, you know, there's some sort of, uh, you know, line of command and that you can make decisions and move things forward. Because I think, you know, the way I like to think about decision making is there are certain decisions that you make and then you can't go back on them, right? So, um, um, in which case you should spend real time on them. Um, if it's a decision that either is not that important, you just need to make the decision, or um, uh, uh, you know you can change the decision later if you went the, the, the wrong direction. It's better to kind of get as much data as possible on, on, on it and then just make a decision as quickly as possible and move forward and execute and then rather adapt and iterate as you go along because building momentum is incredibly important in the early days of a company. And uh, it's hard to do that if there's kind of six or seven decision makers. So at least if you're more co-founders, then ensure that you think a lot through the, uh, the, the structure of who makes decisions and, uh, you know, typically kind of co-CEOs and these types of setups doesn't really work well. You need to uh, establish who would ultimately be the arbiter. Um, but that doesn't mean that the other co-founders are not as important. Um, just means that they are focusing in on the areas in which they are incredibly great at. So, Got it. So I want to talk hey, a bit I'm, of... I'm, uh, you know, I know we're here on video, but yeah. I can see my son is uh, lifting some weights outside. So I'm just going to pull down the... <laughs> okay, the okay, okay. It's important to, to train, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to have his, his workout, uh, you know, published all across YouTube. <laughs> That's a fair point. It's a fair point. Time is going so fast, man. But I, I want to talk a bit about your own like life philosophy and and how you go about your own personal development. And I I think the place I want to start is how you manage to to be as productive as possible because obviously you're running a global operation you are present in all over the world i mean how do you go about being as productive as possible and have that framework changed over the past years or how has that journey become yes yeah, so um um uh, it, it, you know i think that it's incredibly important every day uh to try to become better at what you do and spend some real time kind of thinking through how you can accomplish that. And, uh, um, you know, so, you know, I know there are tremendous of things that 
tremendous amount of things I can become much better at. Um, and just by acknowledging that um, and being conscientious that you should try to improve, uh, there is at least a chance that you will consistently improve going forward. Uh, I think if you don't acknowledge that, then it's very hard uh, to be better. So that's kind of one part of my philosophy is, you know, as, as one of the old famous, uh, you know, philosophers said, it's like the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. Um, you know, it's not quite that, but it's, um, uh, you know, it's definitely kind of a very cute knowledge that I, I can always do things better. And um, I always felt that way. And, and one of the things that I established quite quite early on and I still do is um, I look at kind of what, what I want to accomplish over the next month the next six months, uh, the next three years, and uh, uh, the next decade, um, and in 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 a few different buckets, right? So obviously there's the professional bucket, which means like these are business targets and business goals that you want to achieve. Uh, the other one is personal development. These are things you want to be better at. Uh, for me, there are also things related to family and friends, which you know, unfortunately, I wish I had even more time with, but you know, it's an important part of what you do. There are things related to health and fitness, which for me is it's, it's important to, you know, I find it quite incredible that, you know, if you look at the world globally, people will spend quite a bit of money fixing their cars and their bikes and their house every year, uh, but spend very little attention to, uh, you know, this thing that you're carrying with you every day and is, is bearing your life and ensuring that that's in great shape. So. You know, it, you have those categories. And then you think through, like, what do you want to accomplish short-term, medium-term, and long-term? Um, and uh, on the personal development side, um, there are two things for me there. So traditionally, there's been kind of every year I try to do something which would really challenge me and make me slightly uncomfortable. So, for example, a couple of years ago, that was doing hip-hop dancing. And then uh, the Solora team smuggled in uh, a hidden camera and filmed the whole first session, which was uh, so far one of the most uh, widely spread internal social media posts in, in Solora history. It was some terrible dancing. So I tried to do something I'm comfortable uh, uh, with. I'm, I'm not a great dancer. Um, and then I tried to do very kind of targeted things related to what I could do better uh, professionally, whether that is kind of productivity tools or um, uh, related to communication skill sets or, um, you know, how, how you manage people, how you give feedback. Uh, I try to write down different types of points like this that I can become better at. Um, and then, you know, if you look at a decades plan, um, you know, it's not that important that you, you necessarily kind of 10 years later is exactly where you want it to be. But if you can think long-term around where you want to go, that will affect your short-term decision-making. And the short-term part is incredibly important because if you set 10-year targets, uh, it's easy to become lazy and say, hey, you know, I have 10 years to accomplish this, so I'll take it easy for a couple of years and then you know, get going. So it's, it's important to have that short-term thinking combined with the long-term thinking and just write it down and then once a month, go in there and look at it. It literally takes an hour. You go in there, you look at it once a month and you think about, okay, what do I want to do better? How do I do that? How can I do everything better within these specific fields? And it's a very well worth hour, right? It's almost like an hour of, of, of meditation um, around uh, how you can be a better human being. And, uh, 
and I find that incredibly helpful and, and really encourage everyone to do that if you're not already doing it. it. It does sound a little bit kind of overly structured, but it's really just spending an hour a month, which is not all that much. So like, you know, watch watch one less show on uh, on TV or do it, do, do it on the train, wherever you have this, this kind of do it. Um, so that's one important part. And then I think what is important for me uh, and a lot of people do this in different ways. So, you know, people do yoga, people meditate, people go for walks, uh, people read a book, people hang out with friends. Uh, for me, the way that I, I get a lot of extra energy is, is a bit by active meditation. So I, I like doing kind of very long workouts um, where you just think or, or listen to an incredibly good book and kind of think through what this, 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 this person is saying or, or an incredibly great podcast and think about what that person is saying. And through that, you have a little bit of a moment on your own while you become healthier, but at the same time also um, uh, become a little bit more reflective and have more energy uh, going into the day. So yeah, th those are a few things that I work on and, and, and hope some of it is helpful. I love the story about the, about the hip hop dancing and I've heard some rumors, I think maybe you said as well that you also tried singing classes. Is that correct? That you tried to become a, yeah? So talk a little about the, uh, about that and also why you think it's so important to do uncomfortable things on a regular basis because as you grow older, I mean, you kind of like try to stay in your comfort zone and only play to your strengths. So why are you so conscious about being uncomfortable and trying to do stuff that don't necessarily fit your personality or that you have a special talent of doing but still manage to do it? So, I mean... I don't really know the science behind this because I'm not a neuroscientist, but I do believe that um, um, by doing kind of vastly different things, um, you use different parts of your brain um, and you activate centers um, of your mind and your body uh, that probably has been underutilized for a long period of time. Um, and uh, you know, I think especially within the kind of, it depends what people are doing, right? I mean, if you're in the very creative fields, uh, you might want to, you know, I don't know, do a little bit of math now and then or do a little bit of Excel or structure or whatever. I end up spending a lot of time on kind of the structure side of, of things and the executional side of things. So I think for me, um, stimulating the creative uh, uh, side of my mind on the body uh, is very healthy. And the way for me to kind of best, since I, you know, I think throughout my life, I've done a lot of uh, things on the extreme, both physically and mentally, um, but I've done less on the extreme side of creativity, though I would say that my hip hop dancing or my singing is kind of in the extreme spectrum of things is, is really on kind of beginner level. Uh, you, you kind of challenge different things in yourself. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, at least for me, it has, it, it seems to have a positive effect. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I actually think that most people would benefit from now and then doing something radically different from what you normally do. Uh, and uh, it would just stimulate you uh, to do better at the things that you do every day. Do you have any any special habits when it comes to diet, nutrition, sleep, or whatever? Or because, like you said, like people rarely think about how important it is to keep your body healthy, especially if you want to work as an entrepreneur for a long period of time, right? It's super important to figure out how your body and mind performs at the top level. 
have you experimented with different stuff there or yeah so um uh i i think you know i i never really slept all that much um but i've been quite conscious that i need enough sleep so you know i guess the way to talk about sleep is um i think everyone should probably sleep more i mean all research shows that um that's incredibly great for your productivity and for your longevity and for uh, you know uh, not getting diseases and all those and learning and all those types of things so i think you know i would really encourage everyone to sleep as much as possible i have never required all that much sleep um but i'm quite conscientious to at certain points of time ensure that i get enough uh, um so that means that uh, you know I'm, I'm conscientious of not going through too many days um of kind of below below what for me would be the average amount of sleep that i would need uh, so that i look into um on the kind of eating side i think you know just a well balanced uh you know diet is is important uh, i know there's a number of kind of more regimented regimes there uh, where you try one specific thing for a longer period of time um, um i think that there aren't you know there's no kind of really conclusive um evidence that any of those very one-sided diets works incredibly well but for sure there is a lot of conclusion evidence towards is that one should eat less processed food uh, eat more uh, you know vegetables and uh, and you know that i try to do as, as a lot of other people do um uh, and uh, i think that's important um and then for exercise the way i look at it is um no, I, I obviously work a lot and I, I, there's probably a lot of other people looking at this who also work a lot. The interesting thing, uh, and it took a little bit of, of time to kind of get that in place, but you can actually, if you, if you want to, you know, if you want to stay in, in really great shape, it, it doesn't really require more than, uh, you know, probably kind of seven to nine hours of exercise every week, um, which sounds a lot, but if you can, um, you know, combine that out through the week such that you do kind of 40, 45 minutes three times uh, during the weekdays and you could you could put in 45 minutes almost um, uh, you know any of the weekdays and then you can rest the two others and then uh, you do a couple of kind of longer sessions in the weekends either you wake up a bit before everyone else wakes up and you do it in the morning um, or you just do it later at night or you, uh, you carve out time there and there in the weekends when when you're working a little bit less um, it's kind of really possible to uh, to allocate that time. And I think, you know, uh, that is important. I think for people who have children, you should obviously try to do things with your children that keeps you active and so you can work out with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think if you combine kind of healthy level of sleep and there everyone has different patterns. For me, it works to sleep a little bit less and just ensure that I get a little bit more sleep when needed. When I travel, I travel a lot and I, you know, I, you know, I tried to just immediately fall into the pattern of whatever location I fly to and then sleep on the entire, you know, flight trip there. So you kind of maximize the, uh, you minimize the impact on your sleep. On uh, the diet, you know, well-balanced, eat more vegetables, less processed. And then on, on exercise, try to ensure you get enough in there every week and relate it back to your general activities and fit it into your, um, your, your weekly pattern such that you can get to kind of a level of seven to nine hours a week. I think that that should be possible uh, for most individuals, even if you have children or even if you have a very demanding job. The last question I want to touch upon on the personal side is that 
how do you go about becoming smarter and understanding the world? Because obviously you need to hone that skill all the time. I mean, Antler is building great startups in every different industry and in every country. So do you like to go really deep on subjects, reading about them, or do you manage to use your network a lot, talk to great people to discuss, or how does your learning process look? Yes, so um, I read a lot of books. Um, uh, I also listen to a ton of podcasts, so everyone is listening to this. Uh, you know, you're doing, I guess, the same thing that I do. Uh, and uh, I try to do the, you know, a lot of the books and the podcasts I try to do when I'm doing other things, typically exercise, right? So, um, you know, if you go out on a, a great thing, if you go out on a two-hour run or a one-and-a-half-hour run and you, you, you put on a book or you put on a podcast, you know, uh, not only do you get in better shape, but you also learn a ton on the way. And you forget a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, you being tired during the run. So I think it's, it's a great mechanism. Um, I think it's important to also surround yourself with people, not necessarily all the time, but, you know, you should think about people in your in a network that you can learn a lot from um, and, uh, and spend real time with them and, um, uh, you know, ensure that, uh, uh, you know, they, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that they advocate some time to spend with you, right? So I've uh, tried to identify those individuals throughout my life and proactively reached out to them. So, for example, in Antler now, you will see that Larry Summers is one of our global advisors. He used to be the Secretary of Treasury of uh, Bill Clinton. He used to be the president of Harvard when I was there. And I remained in contact with him since I was there. And when we then started Antler and I could tell the Antler story, he came on board and he was pretty supportive and has obviously been very helpful for us in that journey. Same with Tori Mirholt, to use around, you know, McKinsey in the Nordics and, uh, you know, it's now our chairman. Same with Dominic Bartney, used around McKinsey globally. And there are individuals like this that you meet all the time um, that, uh, you know, you might not, uh, at the time you meet them, you're a student or you're an employee or whatever you are, but at some point of time, uh, you know, they become a sparring partner for you and very helpful for whatever uh, journey you're trying to accomplish. So take kind of good care of relationships uh, of very interesting people you, you meet that you think can teach you something and you think can be helpful for you in the future and then, you know, support them and you'll get support back. And, um, and that I think is, um, is a great learning and you never know when you meet these people, right? So, I mentioned earlier our glacier trips, right? So one of the people that I was very lucky to take on the glacier was uh, Tellef Torlaksson, who's one of the founders of Nordfund, and uh, one of the founders of North Zone. Um, he's now leading Nordfund. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, every time I've been in Norway the last year, I reached out to him and asked if he, he had an hour to spend with me and share, share learnings from his North Zone journey. Uh, and, you know, Norson obviously was the biggest investor in Spotify and Nor one of Norway's most successful venture capital companies, one of the most uh, successful venture capital companies in Europe. And, you know, if you uh, get, get the chance to spend an hour with such a person every day, no, every, every, every year, uh, that helps you a lot uh, on your journey if you want to do venture capital later, which I'm now doing. So, you know, you never know when you meet these people. We met each other on the glacier. Um, you meet them in your university or you meet them in your job or you meet them on the bus or you meet them at the party doesn't matter but if you meet really interesting people that you think can teach you something and be helpful reach out to them 
worst thing that happens is they say no i unfortunately don't have time best case you know and and it's still they will appreciate that you reached out because everyone feels appreciated when you reach out and want to learn uh best case scenario you have kind of a a long long uh, a mentor that you know has 10 to 20 years experience within an area that you would like to learn a lot about and can be very helpful for your journey so i encourage everyone to do that and uh, so yeah i learn a lot from people directly but then also um yeah read a lot of books and podcasts and I, every day i also read the news probably about four or five different newspapers but typically just scan through them quickly um uh so yeah i encourage that but i do it because i really enjoy it i'm not yeah. particularly to you know learn everything I mean, it's great learning and many people would view that as luck when you meet those type of people. But I mean, the truth is that if you have that mindset constantly, you will find good luck come along very often because basically it's just like you have a knowledge, you meet an opportunity. And then the more you come conscious of that and trying to talk to everyone and meet everyone and be nice to them, more good opportunities will come, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Seneca, which is, you know, luck is when great preparation meets the right opportunity. And that is just incredibly true, right? I mean, uh, you can be lucky all the time, but if you're not prepared to take that opportunity when it comes, it doesn't really matter as much. Um, so, uh, and you will throughout life be lucky a few times. It's just down to probability. So you just need to be prepared to take those opportunities. So, um, you know, it doesn't come by itself. It, it comes by kind of being prepared, conscious, and and uh, proactive. 100%. I want to do a, a short segment now, Magnus. It's called long or short. So I explain a concept, and you say if you're long or short it, or underrated, or you think it's overrated. So we're going to start with maybe an easy one, leaving or studying abroad. Long or short, that idea? Uh, I'm long studying abroad, yeah. Universal basic income. Uh, I'm long if I execute it on the, in the right way. Do you have the right way? Can you explain the right way? Do you think it should be? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I, I strongly believe that, you know, the way, uh, you know, at certain kind of basic level of universal income that you, for example, see is, is, is in place in, in, in Norway and, and Sweden and a number of other well-developed countries where you have free access to, uh, to healthcare, education, um, uh, you know, some support from the government if you lose your job. Um, it's incredibly important to create an equal society with equal opportunities. And if you have too big of a difference between the richest and the poorest, uh, that will create all types of problems, uh, which will really not help drive civilization forward. So yeah, in that way, I would do it. Um, uh, but I think it should also encourage people to do something with their life and be productive, right? So you could also put it in, you know, you shouldn't do it in a way where it doesn't matter what type of outcome your life will have. It needs to be, uh, you know, made in such a way that it that it positively, you know, benefits people who make an effort. Next one, Facebook, long or short? Uh, long. Rocket internet. Uh, long in the way that amazing entrepreneurs always make great stuff happen, right? So, um, you know, Oliver Samuel has created some amazing companies uh, he's done you know i think a dozen or so billion dollar ipos and uh, 
I think people who are great entrepreneurs remain great entrepreneurs. Next one, Bitcoin. I mean, impossible to say. Uh, it's like, you know, I, I think very long term long, uh, uh, over the next, uh, you know, few years, no idea. But, but it's an interesting point. You, you, you said that the Winklevoss twins and the amazing company they've built through Gemini. So at least there are some very, very talented people in that industry and they're coming more and more people. So in that sense, you should be long to at least opportunity in that space going forward. I'm very long in the space. I'm very long in the technology. Uh, I think there's tremendous amount of uh, great things you can do with that technology, not only within the financial systems. Um, with the actual, the actual cryptocurrency Bitcoin, um, you know, there's there's too much kind of uncertainties out there in terms of what will happen with the value of that kind of exact entity in the short term, right? It's very kind of driven by the activity of certain whales, the activity of certain regulatory outfits. I think in the very long term, it will definitely go up. And I think, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of power in blockchain technology that will help drive a lot of positive change across the globe. So I'm very long the space in general. I agree. Intermittent fasting. Uh, I'm long. Uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot of, there's obviously a great book, um, which I can't remember the name of right now, but I just read uh, about longevity, which uh, does actually show that there's a great amount of proof uh, behind um, intermittent fasting. Now, you know, I do this occasionally, but, uh, you know, it's mostly because, uh, you know, I don't really mind skipping a meal here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Higher education, long or short? Very long. Follow your passion? Long. Uh, <laughs> I think with the caveat, like, don't always follow your passion. It's, uh, you know, you should follow your passion long term and you should work towards your passion long term. And then you should do the things on the way that will enable your passion to get closer and closer to what you spend your time doing every day. So it's okay to prepare. It's okay to learn. It's okay to build the tools that you need to get where you want to go. Uh, if everyone were to just follow their passion immediately every day, then the world will not be a, a great place. Great answer. So, I mean, it's been such a blast, Magnus. Is there anything we haven't touched upon that you would like to, to close off the conversation with? I mean, there's been so many key lessons shared here, but do you feel like there is anything else you want to leave with the audience? Yeah, so perhaps the, you know, the very end is kind of encourage anyone um, who's, who's listening um, to, to pursue entrepreneurship if you're excited about it, if you believe you have the grit and the drive and the spike, and if you don't have it, then develop that. And, uh, you know, if we can be helpful in, in a small way through Antler, uh, just go to antler.co and you can apply to any of our programs uh, across six continents. So we could literally uh, help you almost anywhere you are in the world uh, with realizing your dreams. And we'd be very excited to do so. Uh, if you don't want to do it with us, you should still go ahead and do it. I think, um, especially at these times, um, you know, with the global pandemic, uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people losing their jobs. Um, uh, you know, a shrinkage in GDP and a lot of economies that is will be much, much harder for, for the poor than it is for the people who are well off. Uh, exceptional people has an obligation 
to go out there and innovate, create new growth, create new employment opportunities. And, uh, uh, you know, just to call out everyone who's, who's thinking about doing it, uh, now is the right time. There's never a better time than right now. And we live in this, I think, uh, exceptional time now where the kind of opportunities and the obligation of our generation is is higher than ever. So, you know, get out there and do it and let us know if we can if we can help you in any way. That's a perfect ending, Magnus. And I'll, I'll put all the links with those information in the podcast and we really hope that people will check it out. So thank you so much for joining, Magnus. It's been a pleasure. Hope we can do this again in the future. Excellent. Thanks, Chris.